Our scripture reading for today comes to us from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. Hear now the reading of God's word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. And Father, we ask that you would now speak to us. Lord, you know the distress, you know the heartache, you know the challenges, as well as the fear that we are confronted with. And we ask now that with all these things weighing us down, that by your Spirit you would banish them out of our hearts and out of our minds, so that our hearts and our minds would be empty and therefore ready to receive all it is that you want us to receive in today's Word. Father, we need you to speak to us by your Spirit through your Word, testifying to your Son. God, we pray now that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, one of the things that I've discovered the older I get is that I find myself asking more questions. Maybe it's because I'm a pastor and it's in my nature to just ask questions all the time as an occupational hazard, or maybe I'm just exposed more to the complexities of the world, and I can't help but to ask questions like, why? Why are things like this? Why are things like that? And one particular question that has been invading my mind recently is this. Why, oh why, do dancers and figure skaters not get dizzy when they spin so rapidly? Have you ever wondered that question? I have. And you're probably thinking, what is wrong with you? Well, let me tell you, I really blame my kids, specifically my two girls, Kara and Leah, because, you see, their mother, the love of my life, decided to put them in ballet school. And one of the things that they must do in their dancing regimen as would-be ballerinas is something known as a pirouette. Do you guys know what that is? It's where you stand on one foot and spin in circles rapidly multiple times. That is pirouetting. And as I witnessed this phenomena of my girl spinning this way, obviously my curiosity kicked into where I asked, why do dancers and figure skaters, how come they don't get dizzy from all that spinning? So, thankfully, I picked up my phone because I knew that on my phone was this little item called Google, freeing me of any sort of anxiousness that came out of this state of ignorance I was in. And so I said to my phone, literally, hey, Google, how come figure skaters and dancers don't get dizzy when they start spinning so rapidly? And you know what Google said to me? It simply responded with this answer, because they fix their eyes on one thing. Turns out the reason why ballerinas and figure skaters, why they don't get dizzy after all that spinning is because as they're spinning, they train their eyes to look upon one thing. And the moment they stop spinning, 
they again look at that one thing that they were fixated on. I got to tell you, when I knew that answer, a moment of peace and calm and serenity descended upon me. And guess what, Christian? That same peace, that same serenity, that same calm could also be yours. You see, it goes without saying that this past month has been a whirlwind where circumstances and situations have left us feeling so disoriented, so dizzy, where questions are twirling around in our head like a massive tornado, robbing us of any sense of peace, but instead leaving us in a condition of being afraid, of being anxious, of being angry even. And obviously in that kind of state of mind, questions will arise such as, is there anything that I can fix my eyes upon? Anything that I could focus on? that could help me feel less unstable, less unsettled? Is there anything that I can look to, one thing that I can hold on to, that can help me feel like I'm not losing my footing? Now, to ask such a question assumes another. And that's the question is, is there even anything out there in existence that could meet this criteria? Is there one idea one truth, one concept to where no matter how crazy, how chaotic, how confusing the world gets, that if I focus, if I fixate on this thing, then everything is going to be okay. Well, interestingly, that's a question that Harvard University a few years ago wanted to ask. And they did so by doing a massive study where they followed 250 people for 75 years. 75 years. That's two and a half generations, folks. And startlingly, they made a discovery. They found what the answer was to that question. And do you know what it was? Consider these words from the Huffington Post that reported on this study. It says this, quote, Love is really all that matters. It may seem obvious, but that doesn't make it any less true. Love is key to a happy and fulfilling life. As Valiant puts it, there are two pillars of happiness. One is love, he writes. The other is finding a way of coping with life that does not push love away. Valiant has said that the study's most important finding is that the one thing that matters in life is relationships. A man could have a successful career, money, and good physical health, but without supportive, loving relationships, he wouldn't be happy. Happiness is only the cart. Love is the horse. End quote. Isn't that interesting? According to one of the most respected, most authoritative academic institutions in the world, they say, that the one thing, the only thing, that could help us in moments of chaos, confusion, and overwhelmed moments is love. And wouldn't you know it, the Bible agrees 1,000%. You see, the Bible tells us that it's love, specifically God's love, that truly is one thing that we need to turn to, especially in moments like this. Now... I know for some of you watching right now who grew up going to church, attending Sunday school most of your developmental life, you've heard what I'm telling you right now. And to be honest, it kind of seems to be falling on deaf ears. Because, if we're brutally honest, it just seems so cliche, so trite, so modern. Yes, we've heard this before, Pastor. And maybe some of you who are watching right now are investigating Christianity. Maybe a loved one, a friend, a coworker, a sibling sent you the link to this video 
because they have been telling you for years what I'm telling you right now, that God loves you. And as you hear that, you're just like, uh, I'm not so sure if that's enough. I don't know if as I scale through the various things of life that weigh me down, and I try to weigh it up against God's love, that God's love really has any weight to it that can help me make light of these things that seem to weigh me down. I get it. The whole idea of God's love just seems too simplistic, maybe even borderline naive. And if that's where you are today, I'd like to convince you otherwise. That no, yes indeed, the God of love is truly the most important thing and the only thing that in times that we're in right now, we need to focus on, we need to fixate on. Especially as we feel at times so disoriented, so dizzy within ourselves. And the way I want to try to convince you of this is by talking about the love of God in the context of threats. Threats. You know, one of the things that we know about threats is that they only arise whenever there is something or someone very important to which that threat is directed against. Again, threats only exist when something or someone is very important and therefore worth threatening. Let me give you a couple of examples. Consider the President of the United States. Now, regardless of how you may personally feel of the current occupant of the office of the presidency, Nevertheless, the office itself is very, very important. It's the most important office in our country, perhaps the most important office in the world to where any person who resides in that Oval Office is seen as the most important person, evidenced by the fact that he's surrounded by an armed entourage that we call the Secret Service. Or consider something more everyday like our computer. You know that our computer has very important information in it. Information to where if unseemly characters ever got access to that information, our livelihood, our family's livelihood would be in danger. And so what do we do? We spend hundreds of dollars buying the latest service and products of protecting any sort of online threats that would try to retrieve that important information. Yes, indeed, life teaches us that anything that is important, anything that is of significance will always have threats against it. And here in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul tells us, that there is one thing that has more threats than anything else, and that's the conviction of God's love for us. And so it is my hope and prayer that as you consider the ways in which these threats are up against God's love for us, that you would be persuaded that the love of God, not only is it something that the Bible says over and over, but it indeed really is the most weightiest, the most glorious, and therefore the most important thing that you and I need to be focusing on right now. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today. First, <clears throat> the internal threat against God's love. Then I'm going to talk about the external threat against God's love. And then we're going to end it with the security for God's love. The internal threat is against God's love, the external threat against God's love, and finally the security for God's love. And so now let's begin with the first point, the internal threat against God's love. Read again with me by skipping down verses 33 to 34, where Paul writes the following, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us. Now, here in these verses, Paul tells us of an internal threat against God's love that you and I are constantly having to deal with, even for those of you who don't consider yourselves to be followers of Christ. And we see this threat be embodied in the two main words that Paul uses in the two rhetorical questions that he raises. And those two words are charge 
and condemn. Charge and condemn. Listen again. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect and who is to condemn? Charge and condemn. Now, back in Paul's day, as well as in our own, these two words were always used together within a specific context. And that's the context of a courtroom. Okay? When a person, for example, gets arrested, they go to the court where charges are brought up against them. And when that person goes to trial to where eventually they get found guilty, that means those charges are now condemning that person. And by using these two terms, Paul is trying to evoke this imagery of a courtroom where you have a person trying to defend their innocence. And the question is, why? Why is Paul painting this brush of a legal context, a courtroom where a person is trying to justify themselves? Well, if you ever read the letters of Paul, and in fact, if you ever read the whole Bible, one of the things that you would know is the answer to that question. Because one of the central claims of the Bible is that the human heart is always trying to obsessively justify itself. In other words, every single person on this earth lives their lives live their life, excuse me, live their life as if they are on trial, right? And they're trying to defend their life. They're trying to justify their own existence. Now, if you're watching and you're not a Christian, you know that what I'm saying is true because you don't have to be a Christian to know that you and I live in a world filled with people always trying to validate their existence, always trying to give justification, always trying to say that they have the right to live. I mean, we see this all the time in the way in which Hollywood speaks of their celebrities. Just a few years ago, Vogue magazine was interviewing Madonna. You guys remember her? <laughs> Madonna? And they were interviewing her at a certain point of her career. And in a moment of brutal, sheer honesty, she confessed these words. Listen to what he, she says here. She goes, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and I guess it never will end. Turns out for Madonna, the charge that she is trying to beat is the charge of mediocrity. And I wonder today, for those of you watching... What charges are you trying to beat so that you don't end up condemned? For some of you, you're trying to beat the charge of being that unaccomplished, unimpressive professional surrounded by your peers who are climbing the corporate ladder, getting the promotions, getting the raises. For others of you, you're trying to beat the charge of being that loser late 30-something, early 40-something single, while the rest of your friends have been married for at least seven years and on their third kid. And then for others of you younger people, you're trying to beat the charge of being that sad recent college grad who has to still live at home. Meanwhile, all of your classmates have moved on and moved out, and they're moving on with great success in their life with the Instagram pictures to prove it. What charges are you trying to avoid happening to your life to where you would feel utterly condemned? Now, before you answer that question, I would suggest to you that there's a more important question to ask, and it's simply why. Why are we like this? Why are we so obsessed of always wanting to make sure that we can justify our life, that we can defend our right to even exist? 
Why are we so driven by wanting to get so much approval and validation? I'd like to draw your attention to those two words I brought up a moment earlier, charge and condemn. Remember, those are the two words that are in a specific context of a courtroom. You see, you and I live in a legal context that really believes that a person is innocent until proven guilty. That's what our legal system says. Now, that's a beautiful thing, but in all practicality and true function, that's not how it really is. Am I right? Because whenever a person gets charged with a crime, even before they go to trial, they're nowhere treated identically the way a true innocent person is. Why? Because a person who is charged is a person who is seen as skeptical about their innocence. In other words, when a person is charged with something, their whole innocence is what brought into question. And Paul says that's exactly what's going on in every single human heart. Every human being that walks on this earth has an internal skepticism of their own innocence. And this is something that social scientists have recently discovered now, especially in our social media age. Just a couple years ago, Dr. Elizabeth Lombardo was interviewed by Chill Magazine. And if you don't recognize her name, she's a social scientist who has written many, many award-winning books such as Goodbye, Imposter Syndrome. And according to her studies, she found that over 70% of our culture, over 70% struggle with this thing known as imposter syndrome. Now, if you've never heard of that phrase, I assure you, you know what it's describing. For consider her definition of what the imposter syndrome is. She writes, quote, a state of fear that you are not really who you appear to be, and that others will figure it out soon. End quote. 70% of our culture struggle with this. That's the imposter syndrome. Okay? It's a terrified state of mind that fears that you are hiding about yourself something that's going to be found out about from everyone else. And the question is, what exactly are we so scared other people are going to find out about us that we already know is true about us? Again, Dr. Lombardo writes, quote, Many people post pictures or quotes that represent their ideal self. They want others to see them in this positive light because they want to see themselves in this positive light. However, once you put those posts out there, then there is the sense that people think that is your normal, especially when people make comments like, oh, you're so beautiful or how lucky you are. And that is when the imposter syndrome starts creeping in. Your inner critic starts screaming, you are such a phony, if only they knew, end quote. We are terrified that people are going to find out of what we already know is true about us. And that is, we are nothing like the persona we portray ourselves to be in our social media platforms. And if I could put all of this in kind of a legalese language, it would basically be this. You and I and every human being that ever existed, we all assume something about ourselves. You know what that is? We firmly believe that we are guilty until we're proven innocent. That is the human condition that the Bible says we are in. We all walk on this earth thinking that we are guilty until proven innocent. And it's because of this mindset that we crave approval from others, including God himself. This is why a person, if they're open to the idea of the existence of God, will never be as open to the idea that God could love them. I can testify, I have spoken to people who are right teetering on the edge of possibly believing in God, but the moment I told them, hey, you know what? God loves you. 
And their response would be something to the effect of, What? God? Love me? If there is a God, I highly doubt he would truly love me at all. What is that? That's the imposter syndrome, driven by this belief that you are guilty until someone can prove that you are innocent. It's the assumption that says, I don't have the right to exist until someone can prove to me that I really have the right to exist. Therefore, would you validate that for me? Would you set me free with your approval? Would you help me not feel so guilty inside? That's the internal threat. Now let's move on to the other threat that goes up against God's love for us. And this leads me to my second point, the external threat against God's love. Read again with me verse 35 and verse 37 where it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Us. Now, if you look carefully at the things that Paul lists, he describes some things that really get in the way of us believing in the idea that God loves us. And what are those things? Read again some of the things that he lists. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, or basically violence. Paul is talking about some really atrocious sufferings. And when I say sufferings, I don't mean first world sufferings that really come down to mere inconveniences. I'm talking about really earth-shattering sufferings to where even if you personally don't go through it, just by virtue of seeing it, by observing it, by witnessing, can really mess you up to the point where it's so hard for you to even believe the concept that God is loving. One particular person who went on this reasoning path is Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman, and who is that? He's a professor of New Testament at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, but don't let that title fool you. This man is not a believer. He used to be, in fact, he used to be a pastor. But then something happened to him that essentially shattered his faith in the idea that there is a God that the Bible describes, that he is a loving God. Here in his own words, as he describes what happened to him, quote, About nine or ten years ago, I came to realize that I simply no longer believed the Christian message. A large part of my movement away from the faith was driven by my concern for suffering. We live in a world in which a child dies every five seconds of starvation. Every five seconds. Every minute, there are 25 people who die because they do not have clean water to drink. Every hour, 700 people die of malaria. Where is God in all of this? We live in a world in which earthquakes in the Himalayas kill 50,000 people and leave 3 million without shelter in the face of oncoming winter. We live in a world where a hurricane destroys New Orleans, where a tsunami kills 300,000 people in one fell swoop, where millions of children are born with horrible birth defects, and where is God? To say that he eventually will make right all that is wrong seems to me now to be pure wishful thinking. End quote. Now, what Professor Ehrman is saying seems to be an open and shut case. The various sufferings that people face in the world just seems to be such to where it is logically impossible to believe that the God of the Bible, the God of love, exist. Now what I just described to you is known as the philosophical problem of evil. The philosophical problem of evil. And if I had to put this argument in a formulaic manner, it would look like this. First, if God exists, then he is omniscient, omnipotent, and perfectly good. Second, if God were omniscient, omnipotent, and perfectly good, then the world would not contain evil. 
Number three, the world contains evil. Therefore, fourth, it is not the case that God exists. This is the philosophical problem of evil. And again, it seems like an airtight argument because it seems to clearly convey that the whole idea of the Bible's concept of a loving God and the reality of unjust suffering in this world just seems so incompatible to the idea that God could actually exist the way the Bible describes him is clearly, from this argument, illogical. What is that? That is the external threat to God's love. Whereas the internal threat says God doesn't love because I messed up, the external threat says God doesn't love because he's messed up. And if you think about it, this kind of argument assumes something, doesn't it? It assumes that the idea of God being loving and the idea of unjust suffering are just so incompatible that they cannot coexist. If one exists, the other by definition cannot. To where if the other does exist, the other item cannot exist. They're just mutually exclusive. But if you think about this kind of reasoning, there's an implication that comes out of that, isn't it? And you know what that implication is? The implication is, if there is no suffering, then belief in the love of God should be possible. That is, the belief in the love of God should exist in the absence of suffering. If the existence of suffering means that the God of love cannot exist, that means the opposite must also be true. The non-existence of suffering should include the belief in a loving God. But look at what Paul says again in verses 38 to 39. He writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here Paul lists out the things that get in the way that threaten externally the belief that God is loving. And he lists some things that we would expect. Things like death. Things like rulers, which according to New Testament scholars is referring to demons and, and, and rulers of the underworld. But then he includes things that we don't expect, things that are considered good, things like guardian angels, things like life. And the word life here in the original Greek is referring to a prosperous life where there's health and wealth and vitality. Here's the question. Why would Paul include in the list of things that threaten, from an external standpoint, God's love for us, good things? like guardian angels, like a prosperous life. Why would he do that? Because Paul is making a very profound point. He's trying to tell us that just because there's an absence of suffering, because your life is prosperous, because you have quote-unquote good fortune, which in reality is God's providence working on your behalf, like when he sends his angels to protect you, right, doesn't necessarily translate that you're going to have this conviction that God loves you. And after all, don't we see that trend? You know, we've seen nations coming out of poverty and going into a developmental status of reaching first world economic prosperity. Look at South Korea. At one point in its economic turmoil, it was living true revival. People were coming to faith, and yet as more money, as more health, and more technology came in, what happened? The belief in the God of the Bible, the belief in the God of love started waning and waning. Isn't that weird? You would think that if the existence of unjust suffering must mean that the God of love can exist, that you would think the opposite is true. 
the non-existence of unjust suffering should mean you should believe more in the idea of a loving God, and yet we don't see that. We see just the opposite. To where there's more blessing, there's more atheism. If that is true, and it seems to be, then why is it hard to believe that a person can go through unjust suffering and still come out of it with robust faith in God and His love for them? See? Here's what you need to understand. Just because a person goes through external suffering to where it seems to undermine the love of God, there are countless of people who go through tremendous unjust suffering. And instead of believing there is no loving God, they know without a shadow of a doubt, because of their suffering, there is a loving God. Here's the question. How do they do that? How do they come to that kind of conviction? Well, I'm going to answer that. But first, I want to go back to my first point and address an issue that I raised up there. And then I'm going to answer the question I just posed. And to do all of that now, let's go to our final point, the security for God's love. Read again the beginning of our passage, verse 31 and 32. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here Paul tells us clearly that there is a way to undermine these threats against God's love for us, both the internal and external. And the answer is the same for both. Verse 32, it's Jesus. It's always Jesus. It always comes back to Jesus. So let's break it down and see how that is so by considering the first threat that I raised, the internal threat. The Bible says that God came into this world as Jesus Christ so that why? He could die on the cross. For what reason? For the reason of forgiving you of all of your sins, all of your failures, all of your ineptitudes, all of your incompetence, all of your foolishness, to where you should be guilty, to where you should be shamed, to where you should receive the punishment that you instinctively feel in your heart of hearts that leads you to crave approval from other people, that leads you to feel the imposter syndrome. The gospel says God came into the world as Jesus so that he could go into the cosmic courtroom and pay your debt, not to society, but to your God, to where now, because of what Jesus did, you are truly set free. You have paid your debt, or it has been paid for you in full through Christ, and now you're free from guilt. You're truly free from shame. And now you don't have to feel like an imposter anymore. Consider these wise words from Pastor Tim Keller as he writes, quote, Every single day we are on trial. That is the way that everyone's identity works. In the courtroom, you have the prosecution and the defense. And everything we do is providing evidence for the prosecution or evidence for the defense. Some days we feel like we are winning the trial and other days we feel like we are losing it. But Paul says that he has found the secret. The trial is over for him. He is out of the courtroom. It is gone. It is over because the ultimate verdict is in. Now, how could that be? Paul puts it very simply. He knows that people cannot justify him. He knows that he cannot justify himself. And what does he say? He says that it is the Lord who judges him. It is only his opinion that counts. End quote. You know, one of the questions that might have been lingering in your head as I was going through this internal threat in my first point is probably the question of, Pastor, 
why are you singling out God's love? Why not include other people's love? I mean, after all, couldn't you make the argument that it's not just God's love that can help us be free of the imposter syndrome? Maybe the loving approval of other people, our peers, our parents, you know, people of authority, people we look up to, maybe their love and their affection and their acceptance can actually make us not feel so guilty at all and have the same effect that God's love for us has as you are claiming. So what's so special about God's love? Couldn't the approval from others give us a sense of innocence to where we no longer feel guilty? That's a great question. My answer? No. It can't. Do you know why? Simply because of the fact that every human heart, with the exception of Jesus' heart, all struggles with this guilt. How can you find any assurance of the approval of someone else when they're just as guilty as you. You know, if you ever um, have the opportunity of being called to jury duty, you would know that both the defense and the prosecuting attorneys, they do something known as sifting the jury. Sifting the jury. You know what that is? They want to make sure, at least if you're on the prosecuting side, that a potential member is not similar in any way to the person on trial. You know why? Because that juror would be biased. It would be considered an unfit juror. Because instead of looking at it from an objective standpoint, they would look at it from a very self-motivated, self-desire to justify themselves being expressed of wanting to acquit the person on trial because they're projecting themselves onto that person. That's the same concept. How could we have any assurance that the approval of someone else could give us the kind of validation we need when they're no better than us, when they're no different than us. No. No, if we want to have approval that can really set us free from guilt, we need someone who isn't guilty. We need someone who is so impeccable, so innocent, to where there is no sense of objectivity being undermined. And the only person who fits that definition is Jesus. He is the only human being, and he will only be the human being, who is truly innocent, which means... His approval of you, his validation of you, which he does for you on the cross, that means it's real, it's true, it's authoritative. You see, even though you and I are by nature unlovable, you and I become lovable because Jesus Christ took the full blame of your unlovableness on the cross, and because of that, you are justified. You have every right to exist. Your life matters. You see, it's through Jesus that we realize that the internal threat we feel is directly concerned with God's love specifically and not just anyone's love generically. And it's this internal threat against God's love that is undermined when you put your faith in Christ as Lord and Savior by turning away from your sins, repenting, and making Him the King, the Lord of your life. It is through Jesus that you can really say, I am really innocent. I have been acquitted. I have been set free from guilt and shame. But what about the external threat? How do we undermine the external threat of God's love for us? Again, Paul says, it's Jesus. You see, Paul says it is only through Jesus that you can avoid falling into doubt that God loves you as you go through unjust suffering. And I can do no better than simply quoting 
Tim Keller, as he says it masterfully in his book, listen again to what he says there. He says, quote, on the cross, Jesus went beyond even the worst human suffering and experienced cosmic rejection and a pain that exceeds ours. There is no greater agony than the loss of a love relationship. We cannot imagine, however, that it would be like to lose not just a human relationship that lasted for some years, but the infinite love of the Father that Jesus had from all eternity. The separation would have been infinitely unbearable. Here we see the ultimate strength, a God who is strong enough to voluntarily become weak and plunge himself into vulnerability and darkness out of love for us. And here we see the greatest possible glory, the willingness to lay aside all his glory out of love for us. See what this means? Yes, we do not know the reason God allows evil and suffering to continue or why it's so random, but now at least we know what the reason is not. It cannot be that he does not love us. It cannot be that he does not care. He is so committed to our ultimate happiness that he was willing to plunge into the greatest depths of suffering himself. He understands us. He has been there, and he assures us that he has a plan to eventually wipe away every tear. Some might say, but that's only half an answer to the question, why? Yes, but it's the half we need. What's he saying? He's saying that no doubt as you go through innumerable sufferings in this life, questions, many of them, will swirl through your head, demanding an answer. But you know what? If you parsed out what each of those questions are really asking at its root, if you boil it down to the underlying question, it really is the crucial question of today's message. Does God really love me? And it's to that question that God answers yes through His Son, Jesus Christ. Here's something that you need to understand. The Bible makes clear, God the Father loves no one more than His Son, Jesus Christ. Before anything was created, for eternity past, the Father loved the Son unlike anyone else. And all eternity future, there is no one to whom he will love more than his son, Jesus. And yet, this same father allowed his only begotten son to suffer. Why? Because he doesn't love him? No. It's so that he could love you. That's the gospel message. The father allowed his most beloved child to suffer not because he doesn't love his beloved child but rather so that he could love you that is what the gospel is teaching us all the time and that is how you overcome the external threat of god's love you see we get it wrong so often when we think we're suffering oh this is your way of telling me god that you don't love me no it's just the opposite. He's telling you as you suffer that he loves you. You know why? Because as you go through suffering, you don't just think about your suffering, at least not as a Christian. As you go through suffering, you are reminded of Jesus' suffering for you and the underlying reason why God the Father permitted God the Son to suffer for you. It's so that he could love you. So don't you see? When you suffer with that assumption, with that understanding, with that truth at the core of your heart, your sufferings is not going to make you think the Lord doesn't love you. It's going to remind you of the one who suffered for you so that God could love you. Do you understand? See, even though Jesus, the gospel, won't be able to answer every specific question that comes out of the sufferings that you go through 
it truly answered the fundamental question behind all of those questions. Does God truly love me? Yes, he does in Christ. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, as you go through this whirlwind of suffering that you may be in or you will be in, I hope and pray that this is something that you will remember so that as you feel this disorientation, this dizzying effect of the sufferings that you may have to bear, you won't be in this mindset feeling so confused, so in chaos, so overwhelmed with anger, anxiety, and anxiousness. But instead, you'll be like my little girls every time they spin around with a big smile on their face, knowing that the end of this spinning and dizzyingness that you may be going through will end with hope, with end with joy, and will end with your God loving you still. Amen and amen. At this time, I want to offer a couple of next steps so that we can better apply today's message. And the first being, if you're here today watching as a non-believer, but you're ready to now believe in light of the hope that we have in Jesus, take this time now to go before the Lord, pray to Him, ready to receive the Son as your Lord and Savior. Accept Christ as your King. And then, please continue to move forward in faith and be a part of a community that will lead you closer and closer to a deeper love for Jesus. The second step is to pick up a copy of the book Objects of His Affection by Pastor Scotty Smith, a very helpful book that I believe that if you read and reflect, especially with someone else, a part of your church, part of your Oikos group, it will further enhance what today's message was trying to convey. And then finally, number three, I want to encourage you to memorize and meditate on 1 Corinthians 4.13. And if you're thinking to yourself, Pastor, you didn't reference that at all. What does it say? Well, that's the journey. Go and look it up today and think about what Paul says here. And may it really enhance the sweetness what I pray today's message gave to you. At this time now, let's now pray, asking for God to bless us as we close the service. Father, we ask that you will help us to truly apply today's word. We thank you so much for your faithfulness and your goodness so that when we suffer, we know that doesn't mean that you don't love us. We also pray that whenever we feel like we are imposters, we would remember that through Jesus we are no longer guilty. We are no longer people of shame, but we are truly set free because we have been acquitted through the work of the cross. Help us to live this out more so that as we continue to go through this whirlwind of COVID-19, we would not be disengaged because we are so disoriented or so dizzy, but instead truly present to the people around us, living out the hope that we have, a hope that we pray we will share with them. Hear us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.